Welcome to another inspirational message from the chapel. We pray this message encourages and inspires you. If you would like any more information, check out our website, thechapelcollective.com.au. In the 8.30 service, we love to get deep into the Word of God and we often go through book by book. And we are starting a new book today. We've just finished the book of Daniel. And today we're starting a new book. We're starting the book of Ephesians. Now, if yeah, amen. Woo. Um, <laughs> Ephesians forms one of the epistles or one of the letters which was written by Paul to the early church. And in this case, to the early church in a town called Ephesus. Paul actually wrote this letter from Rome where he was under house arrest. He wrote it approximately AD 60-61. It's a little book and it packs a whole lot of punch. In just six chapters, Paul is able to summarise the whole gospel story and then explain how that gospel story should reshape every part of our story. But before we dive in, we actually need to rewind first, go back to the book of Acts to set the scene. Now, some of you might remember that we went through, we did a series on the book of Acts about six months ago. If you weren't here for it, Paul is one of the pioneer missionaries of the New Testament. He, in fact, wrote the bulk of the New Testament. He's this sort of like itinerant preacher and leader who travels around the Roman Empire through the first century, leading, preaching the gospel and helping the early church establish. We summarise his journeys, his mission in a, in a series of journeys. So by way of background, Paul had a brief stopover in this city of Ephesus at the end of his second journey. You can read about it in Acts chapter 18. He leaves his friends Priscilla and Aquila there to lead the early church. And they actually start a house church in Ephesus that gets a mention in 1 Corinthians 16 verse 19 when it says, The churches here in the province of Asia send greetings in the Lord as do Aquila and Priscilla and all the others who gather in their home for church meetings. So that's in Ephesus. As you read through the New Testament, you'll see a couple of names come up repeatedly. These are the names of some of the core leaders of the early church, such as Peter, who's sometimes called Cephas, James, the brother of Jesus, who lead the church back in Jerusalem. You'll see Priscilla and Aquila come up a few times as this sort of first century power couple who lead and have an incredible leadership role throughout the Mediterranean in the early church. The other name you'll see come up a few times is Apollos, who's another heavyweight preacher of the day who gathers quite a following. What we're told in Acts 18 is that while Apollos is a dynamic and passionate preacher, he's got a few gaps in his theology and Priscilla and Aquila actually take him in and gently teach him filling in those gaps. So when you read all these names, it can feel a bit dry, like a history lesson in some old dead people. And, you know, I love history, but that's not everyone's cup of tea. But if you look into the text, if you allow it to come to life, it's amazing how these living, breathing, dynamic, spiritual superheroes of the day can step out of the pages and become very real for us. Leadership might be conducted differently today to the first century AD, but at its core, it's still the same. People have this tendency to follow dynamic leaders and having great leaders is a gift to a church. And we can, ta- can we take a moment to honour what great leadership we have in this church? We're not so very different today. We also love to follow the teaching of and learn from dynamic leaders. And God certainly gifts some people with an ability to preach his word, to bring his word alive and make it accessible for us. Only in this age, with online access, these leaders and their teachings are so much more accessible to all of us than ever before. In the New Testament, they lauded the names of Paul, Apollos, Cephas. We can do the same. 
we get really excited about the particular preacher we're listening to or the podcast we're listening to at the moment. You know, we praise Craig Rochelle, Stephen Furtick, Bron Bunnell. Now, she's up there, right? She's, she's pretty amazing, yes? So don't get me wrong. These are all gifted, wonderful leaders that God is using most marvellously to preach the gospel. We honour them for the work they do. But can we never lose sight of the one that we actually follow? We learn from and are encouraged by the men and women who preach the word, but it's not them we follow. A lamb might learn from an older, wiser sheep who to follow, and that is the shepherd. A wise sheep helps the lamb to learn to follow the shepherd, to recognise the shepherd's voice. But it is foolishness to think that another sheep, no matter how clever or how eloquent, could ever replace the job of the shepherd. And we all know what happens when sheep start to follow other sheep, right? The result is usually disastrous. In John 10, 27, Jesus says, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. We follow the shepherd. We don't follow other sheep. Paul said it beautifully in 1 Corinthians. He says in chapter 1, Individuals among you are saying, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptised into the name of Paul? And then he says in chapter 3, What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? They are servants through whom you believed as the Lord has assigned to each his role. I planted the seed and Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. But let's get back to Paul in Ephesus. So on Paul's third missionary journey, he returns to Ephesus and he stays there for more than two years, roughly AD 53 to 55. So it's about seven or eight years before he actually writes his letter to the Ephesians. Paul spent more time in Ephesus than anywhere else throughout his journeys. And during this time, he ministers to the region and builds this huge church network. The events are summarised in Acts chapter 19. It says, Everyone who lived in the province of Asia, Jews and Greeks alike, heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and the diseases and evil spirits left them. It then says, The name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honour. A number of those who had practised magic arts brought their books and burned them in front of everyone. So the word of the Lord powerfully continued to spread and prevail. Read it in full detail. That's a, you know, an abridged version, but it's a pretty impressive series of events. Of all the places he went, Paul did his most extraordinary miracles in Ephesus. And the work of the Holy Spirit was most obvious in Ephesus. Why is that? Well, first, let's learn a little bit about this city called Ephesus. In the AD 50s, Ephesus was an important economic and commercial centre in Asia Minor, what we would know as modern-day Turkey. It was a prosperous harbour city on the major trade routes, so it's a wealthy place. A place full of the occult, full of sorcery. It was this huge spiritualistic hub. It was the epicentre of worship for many of the Greek and Roman gods. Think like Vatican City or Mecca, but for these pagan gods. And one god in particular, which is Artemis. At the heart of Ephesian pride and life was the temple to this god Artemis. That's god little g. Artemis is one of the Greek goddesses, said to be the daughter of Zeus. She's the goddess of the hunt. She would be equivalent to the Roman goddess Diana. Ephesus was so known for its temple to Artemis, that it was actually one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The original temple burnt down in 355 BC and this vast, huge, expensive new temple was subsequently built that became the pride of Ephesus. 
It was a huge marble structure said to be 57 metres wide, 130 metres long. That's larger than a football field and the remnants still stand today. It was 60 metres high, that's 18 storeys in height. They didn't have cranes back then. This is an impressive structure. And the temple to Artemis was the centre for pagan worship and the magical arts and it was the pride and glory of Ephesus. So interestingly, in his letter to the Ephesians, Paul actually parallels the community of church believers to a beautiful temple in contrast to the temple to Artemis. And the metaphor is not accidental. He says in Ephesians 2, 19 to 21, you are members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building is fitted together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord. But why did God do so many miracles in Ephesus compared to so many other locations? If you look at Paul's letter to the Ephesians, this book is one of the most outspoken books on spiritual warfare. I would suggest that in Ephesus, the power and the influence of the occult was obvious. And so God made his power over the occult equally obvious. And when we study biblical discussion around miracles, we can see three purposes or three keys. First, miracles prove his holiness, the holiness of God and the holiness of the one God appoints to perform the miracle. In Acts 2.22, it says, Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs. Second, miracles testified to salvation. Hebrews 2 verse 3 and 4 says, Salvation was first announced by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him and was affirmed by God through signs, wonders and various miracles and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And finally, miracles lead people to him. Romans 15, 17 to 19 says, I exult in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished in, accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders and by the power of the Spirit of God. In Ephesus, God purposefully showed his visible handprints so that people would trust the invisible hands. So, If we were to break that down further, why did God perform so many miracles specifically in Ephesus? Scholars give lots of varied suggestions here, but I think to answer this, we need to look at the heart of God. God wants to be found. Jeremiah 29 verse 13 says, If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. In Matthew 7, 7, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Because God shows up where people are looking. When God led the Magi to Christ at Christmas, he led them by a star. These guys were astronomers. He led Mary and Joseph through dreams, but he didn't lead the Magi through dreams. He led them by a star. He led where they were looking. In Ephesus, people were looking in the supernatural. So God shows up in the supernatural. God's heart is not to be a distant God. He is a God who knows us and wants to be known by us. God does not make it difficult for us to know him. God meets us where we are at. If you are visiting us today, if you're a little unsure about this whole God thing, can I encourage you that God doesn't make it hard for us to know him. He actually wants to be known. He's not waiting for you to jump through hoops or get your act together before he'll reveal himself. He wants to be found. He meets us where we are at. If we will take one single step, pray, Ask him to speak to us. Open our Bible, read his words. 
we will be amazed at how far that one little step can take us. And there would be a lot of people in this room who can attest that that's how it all began for them with one small step towards God. And if you've called the chapel home for a long time, can we follow God's example? Can we meet people where they're at? Let's love people where they're at and leave the transformative power up to God. So with that, we have our background on Ephesus and we come to the book of Ephesians itself. So Paul writes to this church in Ephesus while under house arrest in Rome some sort of seven or eight years after he was there. The church is a diverse group of ethnic and religious backgrounds and they face a lot of division and disagreement. But Paul writes to them to, the, to remind them of what it's all about, to remind them of the breathtaking gospel story and then explain how that story should reshape every part of our story. Now, we're going to spend the next six-ish weeks going through the book chapter by chapter, but for today, I'm just going to do the fly-through, the brief overview. So if you look at Ephesians as a whole and read it start to finish, you'll get a sense that there's two halves or two parts. We'll call them part one and part two. Part one of Ephesians, you can summarise as chapters one to three, and they tell a very different story to part two, which is chapters four to six. So in part one, Paul reminds us of the gospel or of the good news. He explains how all of history has pointed to and culminated in Jesus and in the creation of his church, which is inclusive for all, regardless of ethnic or religious background. He gives this Jewish-style beautiful poem of praise to God the Father for what he has done through Christ. Through Jesus, we are all now members of this new, diverse, all-inclusive covenant family who lives together in peace. Jesus' death covers all our worst sins and all our worst failures. And in him, we can receive God's forgiveness and grace, which opens up a whole new way to live and a new purpose. Ephesians 1 verse 10 says, And this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. So in part one, we're given the beautiful vision of God's heart for humanity and God's heart for the world. And then we move into part two, which is linked by the word, therefore. Part two, chapters four to six, it's linked by the word therefore. So because of part one, we move on to part two. Part two cannot exist without part one. And part two tells us how part one should impact us, how part one should change the way we live our lives personally. Ephesians 4 verse 1 to 3 says, Therefore I beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle, be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. And the reader is challenged in how they respond to this story of part one, evidenced by how they live their own life story. And the church is once again described as this big diverse family, but they are one. And the key here is unity. But note that unity is not the same as uniformity. The church is diverse but it is unified. There are lots of very different people, but they are all unified under the one spirit. And so this letter or this message to the Ephesian church is just as applicable to our church today, diverse but unified. Part two tells us how once we truly understand part one, we're going to die to our old self and put on our new self. And this new self is characterised by thankfulness, by mutual submission, by each one of us putting others before self, which has hugely beneficial ramifications in all our relationships. And when we put on this new self, we become more aware of spiritual forces and are alert to stand firm in our convictions. But part two doesn't happen without part one. 
Part one is the wonder and awe of what Christ has done. This beautiful vision he paints of a church that is endlessly diverse, but infinitely united as one body with its many parts, all coming under the headship of Christ. We so often get this backwards. We think that we have to fix ourselves, change the way we live. We have to get part two right before we can enter God's throne room, before we can receive the Holy Spirit, before we can grasp part one. But this is the crazy thing about grace. Grace flips the world's logic on its head and reverses the order. By grace, we get to see God's marvellous perspective whilst we are still sinners. And when we get a glimpse of the glory of part one, it changes everything we do in response. Once we grasp the vision of part one, it naturally changes the way we live and we move into part two. When we see the world from Christ's perspective, it changes how we live our lives and how we live our relationships. When we fully understand part one, part two is the natural consequence. It doesn't come through striving, it comes through response. When in everything we do, we seek not our own glory, but the glory of Christ. Who, um, who's done something like bungee jump, skydive, something like that? Okay, a few brave hands have gone up. Jet boat? I'm talking about free fall. I'm not talking about, no, I'm not talking about brave things like getting out of bed when it's minus four. Um, you, you guys can pat yourself on the back. I'm talking about free fall. I'm talking about something that really gets a bit of G-force up. Um, I'm talking about something that really stretches your courage. So Ephesians, Ephesians can also be about the courage of the, uh, the people in Ephesus, that they had such a hard place to minister to and they were courageous and they were doing a really good job. So I wanted to talk about courage this morning and um, I've got a few photos here of the last time I felt like really courageous. I had to really employ a bit of courage there. A um, couple of months ago, we were in New Zealand. The Benels were there too. So there's that slide. This is on a platform 100 metres above a canyon, like 100 metres up, vertical. Free fall for four seconds on what's called the giant swing over the Shotover River. And you could choose the method of which you would swing. So there we have Lockie Bennell uh, riding a little clown's tricycle off the ledge and down into the canyon to swing down. Um, Bella and Kate did a tandem swing and on the next slide you'll see Phoebe and I, I did a, uh, a handstand there. Um, that's not a handstand, that's a push-up, but I'm looking down over the ledge there. Then Phoebe and I did a tandem. We did, I did two jumps, just to let you know how brave I am. <laughs> and I had clean undies that day too, just for the record. It's good fun. When we live as Christians, it's, it's a very unique religion in that living as a Christian requires courage. At every step of the way, it requires this step of faith. It's, it requires this moment at, at pivotal points in, where, in our walk whereby we just have to employ some courage. Remember the, remember the time that you put your hand up in church to receive Christ? You didn't know what you were doing. You go out to the front and someone say, I'm going to put my hands on you and pray. You're like, whoa, what's going to happen here? What's going to happen here? And someone will ask, hey, do you, want, do you want me to pray that the Holy Spirit will come into you? You're like, what? What's that about? And then it requires a little bit of courage. Someone might say, hey, we're going to pray that you can speak in tongues. Whoa, well, that's weird. That's going to require some courage to step into it. Um, courage is littered throughout the Christian walk. Persecution 
Coming up against persecution requires courage to push into it. Telling people that you just become a Christian, that requires courage to say it. Letting people know at work or in your family or whatever that you are a Christian requires courage. Courage is required at most points, at regular points in your Christian walk if we're doing it really well. And so I wanted to use that illustration of jumping off a ledge in the sense that courage is that moment where you don't know how it's going to feel. You make a decision, you flip the courage switch, you take that step and you just don't know how this decision is going to land. You don't know how it's going to feel. You don't know if it's going to be scary, if it's going to hurt, if it's going to change your reputation. You just don't know whatever it might be that you need to employ courage for. You just don't know how it might land. The word courage does not have a direct Greek equivalent. So when you go through the New Testament, there's there's no direct uh, translation from Greek into English for the word courage. So I'm going to use a Hebrew translation right now, and that is the word hazak, H-A-Z-A-Q. And that means to show oneself strong, to show oneself strong, not to be strong, but to show oneself strong. You might feel weak, you might feel scared, but the courage overcomes that. And so it's, it's kind of like fake it till you make it. If you're going to put it into a, a current day context, a current day translation, you fake it until you make it or you grin and bear it. And so it's not so much a feeling, but it's a mentality. You don't wait to feel courageous. You think yourself into it. It's in the head. It's not in the heart. It's not in the emotions, wherever they happen. I don't know. I'm not scientific, but it doesn't happen down here. It happens up here in the head. It is a natural thought of victory. Courage is that natural thought where you go, we're going to get over this. I don't know how hard it's going to be. I don't know what the ramifications are, but I'm going to step out in courage and I'm going to be victorious. And when we do that in our Christian walk, we do it knowing that we serve a victorious God. We serve a God who is going to strengthen us, who's going to bring us through whatever we want, we need to get through and whatever that courage is trying to push us through. So it's not a feeling, it's a thought. That's an interesting thought, isn't it? And it's also not a character trait. Courage isn't a character trait. So you can say that someone is courageous, but you're not always born courageous. Courage is something that you build up. It's kind of like discipline. Discipline is something that you build up over time in, in through, throughout your life, through your adulthood. You just get better at discipline, maybe, um, if that's the way you're inclined. But it's something that you build up to the point where you might be labelled courageous. Anyway, and we, when we think about courageous people in history, we think about um, freedom fighters or someone like a Martin Luther King or a Nelson Mandela who stood to, to lose everything just because they were fighting for something. And so that is the dri- courage is the driver towards that one thing that we're trying to get. Here's what my Bible dictionary says about courage. It says that courage is a Christian duty but it's also a constant possibility for one who places him or herself in the almighty hands of God. It shows itself in patient endurance, moral steadfastness and spiritual 
fidelity, patient endurance, moral steadfastness, and spiritual fidelity. I want to tell you about a friend of mine. He's a, a bishop in India. Um, he's the father of a very good friend of mine who's my age. Um, there should be a photo behind me here. His name is Bishop Peter. And I've known him for about 15 years. He's the, he's the man um, second from the right there, not the man with his arm around me uh, right there. Um, so he, he is an Indian pastor, a bishop, and his testimony just astounds me. At 17, he met the Lord and gave his life to Christ. He's a Hindu man from a Hindu family. And God just grabs him, just grabs his heart, changes him forever. And he goes back to his family and tells them, hey, I just became a Christian. His family said, if you're going to keep Jesus, then we're not going to be related to you anymore. We don't want to see you again. Get out. And if you still remain in Jesus, we're going to kill you. Yeah, anyway, so he hasn't seen his family for a while and um, he, he knew that he was being called into the ministry. So his life was changed, the Spirit of God came over him and he was courageous enough to actually run with his faith. Now this is a common problem um, in, in areas of the world whereby there's strong religious um, presences that aren't Christian. So in, in India, in Pakistan, Muslim countries, if you become a Christian, you go back to your family, say become a Christian, well, then you will often lose your place in the family. So he wasn't born with Pastor Peter. Well, he wasn't born Peter. Um, he was born into a, with a Hindu name and he had changed his name to Peter. So he became a pastor. When I met him, he ran a, a church of 600 people. When I went back to him a couple of weeks ago, his church is now 2,000 people. Yeah, in the space of about 12 to 15 years, it's, it's, almost, it's more than tripled in size. And so he just keeps pushing through with this sense of God just aligning his life to the works of the gospel. 2 Timothy 1.7 says, For the Spirit does not give us uh, for the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but it gives us power, love, and self-discipline. In the King James Version, it translates self-discipline to sound mind. There's that courage again. It's in the mind. It's not just in the heart and the emotions. It's we, we think our way into it. But God gives us the spirit, the spirit of God inside of us to bring us towards courage. And so people like Bishop Peter have inspired me to be more courageous. He just, no, he's lost everything he had at 17. Like at 17, you've got your family, you've got your hopes and dreams, and that's about it at 17. You don't have direction in life. You might have a plan, but he, he lost, he threw away his security for the gospel. That's courage right there. He threw away his, his safety and his freedom. Like he could have been killed. That happens in parts of the world. But he was courageous enough to hold on to the Spirit of God and be drawn by that. Courage requires three things. And here's, here they are. Um, commitment or conviction. So there's, it starts, courage starts with a conviction that I need to change or I need to do something. And then that conviction moves into a commitment that I am going to do it. 
And so it, it anchors ourselves in our heart. It also requires consistency and then it requires closeness with God. And so when we, when we look at self-discipline and we look at having a sound mind out of this verse in 2 Timothy, we see that um, God uses that, but he requires us to, to do those couple of things, that we remain convicted and committed because of the conviction he gave us, that we remain consistent in the way that we live and that we remain close to him. That's what real courage is. And so in Joshua 1, there's so many, so many uh, instances where God or even Moses says, be strong and courageous. Sorry, where in Joshua, God says, be strong and courageous a number of times. But Moses, in the back end of Deuteronomy, says, be strong and courageous to Joshua as well. So Joshua is hearing these words all the time. And so when we read Joshua 1, it says, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, who was Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. No cushioning right there, just straight into it. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I am about to give to them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you'll be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. And so when you pull this section of scripture out you can see that there's a conviction and a commitment that God says I am going to send you into the promised land and I'm going to give you victory and so Joshua leading the army comes up and tells the army that you know we're going to take it we're going to we're going to walk around Jericho seven times and the walls are going to come down and we're going to take that territory and we're going to go into the land of of military strongholds and we're going to win it he runs with this conviction if God leads you into something, he will lead you through it. He's not going to lead you into a fire and not bring you out of it. So when, we, when we've been told by God that something's going to happen, then we can go in freely with a bit of courage, knowing full well that we're going to come right out of it because he's walking us through there. And we, we learn about consistency here in this as well because God tells Moses to be strong and courageous and to always obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it from the left or the right. Like Stay focused. Don't change the way you're doing things. Just continue to be consistent. And when you do that, you don't require as much courage because it becomes natural. You step up into this next level of courage whereby it's just normal. And that's, and that's a great platform to take on even more courage and be more effective for the gospel of Jesus. Courage requires consistency. 
Courage requires closeness as well. And in verse 8 of Joshua 1, it says to keep the book of the law always on your lips. So to read the Bible, to pray, to keep God close, to fan into flame the spirit that is inside of you. 2 Timothy 1.7, God gives you a spirit of power, love and sound mind. Fan that into flame. Sit in that. Ask God to build it up, to build your courage and to just build that fire inside so that life just feels a bit more easy. You can jump again. It's easy when you just push into courage. I believe that everyone needs a bit of courage at some stage in their life. Life gets harder, yeah? You think, oh, life's going to be great when you become an adult and you get into adulthood. You're like, oh, this is hard when you've got to do it all by myself. Who's been there? Everyone? I have. And then you think, oh, well, life will be better when I find um, a fantastic spouse. And it is, but it's challenging, isn't it? And so, yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then you get kids. Oh, no, they're such a blessing, aren't they? The little blessings. <laughs> Little blessings, they're challenges too. It requires courage. It may not be scary, but it just requires courage to do a bit more, to pray bigger prayers, to get better in yourself, to become more effective, whatever it might be. And as we we walk through our Christian life, we try and become better Christians. Not that there's a scorecard to it, but we just want to be closer to God. And being closer to God requires courage. Have you ever prayed the prayer, God, use me? in whatever way you want, oh, that's scary, isn't it? That opens you up. God, I want to hand over this sin that I'm really struggling with. Oh, that requires a bit of courage, doesn't it? That's hard. Every point of your Christian walk, if we're getting closer to God, will require that little bit of courage, that little bit of self-discipline, whatever it might be, that choice that makes us go, you know what, I'm going to cast off my humanness, I'm going to cast off my sinful nature so that I can become closer to God. We have a dedicated prayer team led by the amazing Ree Mepham and Lydia um, and we have people who pray after the service here And I want to encourage people today to pray courageous prayers. And I don't want to use this time to say, be more courageous, to point my finger and go, come on, guys, be brave. But I want to talk about courage to encourage everyone here today to just live stronger lives for God, to live a bit more risky, to take that jump where you don't know where you're going to land, where you don't know how it's going to feel, where you don't know the consequence of your prayer or your action but you know that if God's calling you into it, that he's convicting you to do it, that it's going to be okay. It's always going to be okay. might not be easy, but it's going to be okay. Would you join with me in prayer? Father God, thank you so much that courage is just a step whereby we're just responding to you. You've led us into something. You're leading us towards something. And it's just a response where we say, God, yep, I'm doing it for you. It's, it's going to take something of me, but I'm removing myself so that I can bring you into this circumstance. And so, Father, I ask, Lord, that whatever, whatever is in the hearts and minds of all, everyone here this morning, whatever requires a little bit of courage, whatever that next step is, I just pray, Lord, that you will um, bring us to a point where we just jump, where we just leave that platform and where 
all control goes over to you. So, Father, we hand those things over to you this morning. Use them in a mighty way, but use them for your glory. In your mighty name we ask these. Amen. Hey again, thanks so much for joining us on this podcast. Whether you are new and exploring your faith or a follower of Jesus, there's a next step for you. There is always room to grow, more to be done, destiny to be pursued and people to be reached. So what's your next step? To find out, head over to thechapelcollective.com.au And thanks again for listening.